Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, I'm stand-up comedian James Mullinger and the co-founder of Edit Magazine. This is Mullinger Meets Canadians, the podcast where we meet Canadians who are making waves on the world stage. Welcome to the final episode of the third season of Mullinger Meets Canadians, and what a season it's been. An emotional roller coaster with lots of love and laughs along the way, and a passion for all things Atlantic Canada. We've had the awe-inspiring Tarek Haddad, who shared his story of hope, love, tolerance and entrepreneurship. Nova Scotian rapper Classified discussed working with Snoop Dogg, and outlined how it's possible to have a global career as an artist living on the east coast of Canada. Bonafide Atlantic Canadian icon and legend Nancy Regan and I had such a lovely face-to-face -face chat in the Podstarter studio that it was the beginning of a very beautiful friendship. Glace Bay, Nova Scotia-born Ron James is one of Canada's most beloved comedians, playing to packed houses and standing ovations every night from coast to coast to coast. And we put the world to rights in a far-reaching interview. And now it's the season finale and we have a not-so-special guest. I know, that doesn't sound very charitable of me, does it? But I'm allowed to say it because, well, it's me. That's right, ever since I became a Canadian, I am now a valid guest on Mullinger Meets Canadians. But obviously I can't interview myself, that would be weird. So we invited one of my favourite journalists, John Tatry, the author of bestseller Piece by Chocolate, the powerful and moving story of the Haddad family, to interview me live on stage. John Tatry, as you know, is an award-winning author and multimedia journalist who's written about Nova Scotia history for Lonely Planet, Canadian Geographic, Reader's Digest, The Globe and Mail, CBC, and many other outlets. He's also the author of eight books, including Daniel Paul, Mick MacElder, and Cornwallis, The Violent Birth of Halifax, all of which are award-winning regional bestsellers. And his next book, Sword and Soul, will be published in 2024. To make it special, we also invited 300 of our closest friends to join us in the Paulo Regan Hall at the architectural marvel that is the Halifax Central Library to discuss my eight years in Canada, the writing and publication of my memoir, Brit Happens, Living the Canadian Dream, childhood trauma, writing comedy, and much, much more. So here's John and, well, me, and, and you too if you were there. Here we go. Hello, everybody. The journalist in me hates to have applause for me. I always think I've done something wrong if somebody's cheering for me. Uh, I am John Thatcher. I'm delighted to be your host tonight. In particular, tonight, we're going to talk to James Mullinger. And if you're like me, uh, maybe over the last 10 years or so, you've gone from hearing, who's that English comedian in New Brunswick, to somebody who's become the face of the Maritimes. My wife has even called him the Rick Mercer of Canada. 
he is a stand-up comedian. That's the root of everything he does, his core passion. But of course, we're here tonight to talk about his new book, Brit Happens, and his podcast, which we are actually in the middle of right now. Uh, I've got a pile of questions. Uh, James and I are really excited to, to talk tonight and get to know each other a little better. So ladies and gentlemen, welcome James Mullinger. Thank you for that lovely welcome, everyone, and John. Thank you, James. Thank no? you. I'm, like most people, I'm a big fan of John's uh, work, so this is genuinely an, an honor for me to be here with you. I've actually brought uh, two of your amazing books oh, for nice. you to sign for me tonight. <laughs> so this is lovely. Thank you for awesome. everyone agreeing to spend your Saturday night with us. Now, I have a little factoid for you. I thought you might appreciate this, James. We are at the Halifax Central Library. Did you know... This is where the infirmary used to be. This is where the infirmary used to be. So, last night I asked my father. Beautifully done, my friend. Uh, uh, it's funny, because I, um, I already knew my way here, but had I asked someone for directions, no doubt that is exactly what they would have said. So. Had you asked my father, I asked my father last night, I wanted to make sure, and this is what he told me. There was an empty parking lot, and a parking lot as well as the old Halifax infirmary where I worked for years, he was a chaplain. The giant Jesus, was on the old infirmary. It was run by the Roman Catholic nuns from the Mount St. Vincent uh, convent until the province took over. If you want to visit the old giant Jesus, Christus Rexus, Christ the King, you need to go to Coal Harbor and see it installed in the garden near the Roman Catholic Church. So, Beautiful. That's amazing. <laughs> and I will do that because, as, as all of you know, in order to find your way around as a new Canadian to this region, you do have to have a degree in failed Canadian businesses. <laughs> and... Uh, and, and I, I now have one. Um, and, and I do now think, when people do it to me, I think sometimes that they're joking. Like, I was in Moncton a few weeks ago, and I was asking someone where the uh, Atlantic Lottery building was. And, and she said, oh, it's where uh, Woolco used to be. And, and I was like, oh, good one. And she was like, what? No, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, oh, not everyone knows the joke yet. I have work to do. <laughs> so the first thing I wanted to ask you about, James, was... Being funny, so it's one thing when you're funny live, and you write your material, of course, but you have the immediate reaction. You can tell if it's funny or not. People laugh or they don't laugh. But when you're writing this book, the book is uh, sweet at times, sensitive at times, uh, serious at times, but funny, you know, page after page of funny. So can you tell us a bit about being funny on page and also what it's like when you don't get to have the reaction, you don't get to hear it. People will go home tonight and be chortling all over Nova Scotia, but you won't know. So what was it like to be funny on, on the page? It's a good question. Yeah, I um, I think I, I mean, I definitely found the the, the writing process or, or the release process quite nerve wracking because when I was writing it, um, I've always written a diary. As as a child, I wrote a diary, and it was something that got me through hard times. I, again, I wasn't, um, I didn't have a great childhood in terms of like I didn't have many friends, and I wasn't academic, and I wasn't athletic. I was I was what my mum recently jokingly described as a triple bill of failure for them <laughs> uh, because. Uh, Normally, if, if your child doesn't play sport, maybe they're good at math. I had none of it, and, and I was too scared to talk to other kids, so I've always written a diary. And so I think the combination of, A, writing, which is something I've always done as a cathartic uh, outlet, combined with, obviously, writing it predominantly during COVID, meant that I kind of almost forgot uh, that people were going to read this. Um, and so the funny bits, I guess, I found... Uh, somewhat easy to write, although as you rightly point out, it's such a different discipline writing stand-up uh, to, to writing a funny, a funny book. 
But so the thing that really terrified me most was the fact that uh, suddenly when I saw it designed in PDF form, looking like a real book with page numbers, I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, it, am I actually going to alienate people who maybe like my comedy because they're going to go, oh my goodness, he's, he's so depressing. <laughs> and, uh, and so that was... Um, Slight concern, but you're right. I mean, because the way I write stand-up is that I will come up with bullet points of ideas. Like when, when I come up with a new, uh, when I'm writing a new show, I will make a list of bullet points. Sometimes they're written out, but a lot of the time it might just be one line. And it, it looks like the weirdest thing because like my kids sometimes find my, my set list and they're like, what's this weird shopping list? Glory holes, balls, <laughs> like uh, homemade wine. Like what is this? What's this bizarre shopping list you've got here? And um. And so the way I write stand-up is that I will go on stage with these ideas and start talking. And then as the bits get more and more formed, I will tape record these work-in-progress shows. And what I do is I, I tape record what I say on the night, and then I transcribe it word for word. And then I go through and highlight in red where the laughs came. And then I will, I mean, it's so scientific and it's really boring as well. Like stand-up is supposed to be fun and it, it, it's like, it's, 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 it's going to be a scientific process. Um, and, but what I will then do is highlight in red and then basically work out which words can you lose in between the, the, the red marks to get to the joke. And of course, some of those words are, are vital and they make the joke more fulfilling because of it. So to your point, suddenly writing a, a book that is supposed to be comical, and a lot of the credit I have to put down to the, my editor, James Langer, who was um, meticulous at kind of uh, making me less long-winded. As shown, I'm, this is a very long-winded answer. <laughs> To, uh, so tightness is not a good, uh, is not one of my skills. So I think a lot of the writing was probably quite long-winded, so it's a strange thing that, yeah, in my stand-up, I think I'm very get to the punchline quickly, but in real life, end up talking a lot of bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you find, like, not getting the reward? Like, you don't know when people find things funny. I, mean, I imagine you tested it with readers, but what's that part? Like, just kind of letting your book go out there and do its, its own work? Yeah, I, I, it, it is really nerve-wracking and when it went out there I think because I put so much of myself on the page and I mean again at that last minute you know when I suddenly realized that people were going to read this thing um I there was a temptation to remove certain things and of course but then I thought well if I'm doing this I may as well be be, be honest this has to be honest it has to be real um I have to be essentially true to the reader if I'm going to write a memoir then it has to be exactly what happened and how I felt about these things. Um, so it was, it was, it was, yeah, genuinely terrifying. But yeah, I, di I didn't cut anything for that reason. And um, and so the the feedback has been lovely, and in many ways, uh, even more fulfilling, I think, than stand up. Because I love obviously stand up, and I love the art of coming on stage and making an audience laugh. But I've been, I mean, I'm doing it for a long time, and not that I've become jaded with it. But I don't come off stage, and it's not like high fives all around. Like you come off, you can walk off stage from, with a standing ovation and 10 minutes later to be in your hotel room feeling lonely and like just normal. Whereas I think because this is so much of, uh, I guess to get philosophical, like it's really me. Um, and all of my insecurities, all of my worries, all of the struggles I've had in life. So when someone writes and says that they've enjoyed it or been moved by it, in some ways it actually means a lot more than uh, a standing ovation or, or an applause break in, in stand-up. And I want to talk a bit about the podcast, which we're on right now. You started in August 2020, one of those 2020 projects, and it's, it's become, to me, it sounds like it should be on the CBC. Uh, it's, it's just a terrific interview, and some of the recent ones I've heard, you had Rick Mercer on uh, not long ago, and to hear him talk about his husband and their business and creative partnership, I'd never he heard him talk 
that sort of openly. And for example, things like he was saying how he always put his name above whatever show he was on. And I think you or Rick compared it to being like a plumber. You know, if you're a plumber, she's going to put her name on the side of the van to tell you she's a good plumber. It's not bragging. And so to hear Rick talk like that was, was fascinating. You had Nancy Regan on recently as well. And I was telling my wife about how great the Nancy Regan interview was. And at one point she said, when did James move here? And I said, I think 2014. She's like, how does he know Nancy Regan like we do? Because I don't think Live at Five made it to South London in the 1990s. And then I'll just mention uh, uh, Clifton Cremo, who you had on a little while ago too, a, a Mi'kmaq comedian up in uh, Eskasoni First Nation, up in Cape Breton. And to hear him talk about the challenges of doing stand-up comedy when it's the same 10 people every night, if you manage to get anybody to turn out. Yeah. Uh, and to, to do it as a Mi'kmaq person, like to sort of find the humor and to play with an audience that might not always expect that. So can you talk about what it's been like for you to go on the other side of the, the microphone and meet all of these people? And how do you make them seem like they've known you for 20 years? Well, that's a huge compliment, especially coming And do you tell them that you're recording them? That's what I most thought yes, with Rick Mercer. I was like, did you tell him he's... <laughs> Um, I, I mean, it's, it, the, the show was conceived by an all credit to, to Podstarter, who produced uh, the show, and Sarah, who is here tonight, who is an amazing stand-up comedian. If you have a chance to go and see Sarah perform stand-up, you should do so. Uh, she um, is, is, is the brains behind this, and, and, it's, and, and they, they all uh, conceived it. Um, as, a, as, a, as a new Canadian and someone who is fascinated with this country and loves this country, it has been an absolute dream project, and especially during COVID, to kind of meet and speak to all of these remarkable um, people. And yes, I mean, I guess one of the running things that does come up a lot, especially with performers, is, you know, famously Canada doesn't have a star system. Famously, uh, performers have, have complained, especially comedians have complained for many years here about needing to go to America to feel um, uh, recognized um, back home. Um, traditionally, of course, Canadian comedians do move to England or America to make it. And I, I'm one of the few that kind of made a decision to, to leave England. And of course, I didn't move here as a career move. It, it was, it was, a, it was a, a quality of life decision, but, but in, weirdly, in some ways, became a career move uh, against you know, surprising odds. But um, yeah, what I found really interesting talking to Rick was that he had never really talked that openly about... I guess a lot of the time performers don't want to talk about not, not the ruthless side, but the business side of it, because it sounds, no one wants to give away the intricacies of what it takes to get there. And so to, to Rick's point, yes, you know, he had to fight because classically in, Cana in uh, Canadian theatre, they don't want uh, artists' names above the name of the show. And the reason being, they want the show to be bigger than the artist, so that if the artist leaves, they can fill them in and no one notices. And so it was, it was Rick's uh, manager and husband, Gerald, who fought for Rick's name to be above. Uh, actually, what he did was put Rick's name in the title, so it had to be, um, which, which is um, genius, but hence, Mullinger meets Canadians. <laughs> and, and, um, and so it was an interesting thing hearing about the ways, and I think that that's what I wanted the, the book to be very much about, was the reality of the grind, of what it takes to uh, turn what is a, a, a dream job and a ridiculously, you know, how many people say that they want to be a comedian, they want to feed a family, telling jokes for a living? It's, it's, it's such an a, a absurd pipe dream. Just wanting to kind of convey what the grind is like to get there and, and indeed to, to, to continue doing it. But yeah, I, I really loved Rick opening up about those things because again, he doesn't need to. He could very easily kept all of that stuff secret forever. And, and little things like when he played, he was playing the National Arts Center in Ottawa. And it was, he was playing like the little, the hundred seater in the basement. But back home, Gerald told all the Newfoundland newspapers that he was playing the 4,000 seater. 
<laughs> so he like took out an ad and it was like a full page ad saying, you know, congratulations to Rick Mercer for selling out the National Arts Center. And then he came and had these huge homecoming shows. And, and again, I mean, it's all smoke and mirrors, but I think the, the, the weird thing is, is that in bigger cities, uh, traditionally, or always in, in Hollywood and in London, people have managers to do that for them, uh, uh, and advisors and publicists and agents, whereas here you are literally doing it all yourself. Um, and so, you know, I mean, any when I moved here, I, and the way in which I got work was literally walking around handing out flyers myself. Like when, if my wife said, go to the, take the kids to the park, I'd be like, yeah, and I'd stuff my pockets with flyers. And I would be at the park and I would talk just a little bit loudly so people would go, oh, what's that accent? English, comedian, I'm doing a show next week. <laughs> and, uh, and literally, I mean, it was, my whole life was, and because I've done fringes, like you do a fringe festival, that's your, your week. Your week is flyering and everyone you meet, you're chatting them up and you know, going into a bar, going, yeah, I'm doing a show. That, that's, that's, and performers do that for a week as a fringe. That's my entire life. Um, so uh, it's, um, it's, what I like about it is it's, so grassroots and so in many ways, even though it, it's, um, there's a strategy there, it's grassroots and it's real because in, in big cities there can be, or in, in places like Hollywood with a built-in star system and in London, there's backhanders, there's deals that can be done. In the maritimes, it's all, it's word of mouth. And, and kind of like to use the plumber analogy, if, if, if a plumber moves to a place and does good work, people will tell people and they will continue to get work. Uh, and same with a performer or an opera singer or a musician or a writer, people will, will tell people there's no kind of way, of, there's no marketing way of doing it. It's, it's word of mouth. Um, whereas, I guess to my point, like you can be a terrible plumber in England and get away with it for years. Because <laughs> even if everyone whose home you flooded told everyone they knew, still 0.0001% of the population would hear about it. You flood one house in Nova Scotia. <laughs> you are never working again. And, and, and similarly with stand-up, it, it made me realize I cannot bomb at a singer. Not that I ever didn't take gigs seriously in England, but I would go to a place and know that if I bombed, no one would ever hear about it. And I was, became very aware very quickly here that if I had a bad gig, everyone would know about it. So I had to work hard to make sure that hopefully didn't happen. And in the book, you describe some of those bomb nights and some surprisingly recently. Yes. <laughs> it sounds terrifying, like as me, like with books, if I come up and I read about Peace by Chocolate and you all are blank faced, it's fine. That's, that's the reaction I expect. <laughs> but to go up on stage, and I mean, how do you get out of bed in the morning? How do you keep going there? How does it not destroy you? It would, <laughs> it's it would a good bring... question. I mean, I, as much as I, I never want to give um, bullies credit for anything, I think being bullied at school possibly helps in that um, nothing could ever be as bad as that. And I feel like when a gig goes badly, and again, I mean, you're right, there's, uh, I, I document a lot of the, the awful gigs I had starting out, but also more, more, more recent uh, terrible onstage deaths as well, which can happen for so many different uh, reasons. But I guess what happens when you start out and like, you know, the first few gigs you have are, uh, obviously go very bad. And then you think, I can't do this anymore. And then you have one good one or one, you know, uh, you might get one laugh. And the feeling you get from that one is enough to propel you to keep going. And so now, I mean, obviously, uh, at this kind of stage, like almost 20 years in, the deaths are, they're less frequent. And I definitely wanted to focus on this. One of the things I hate in comedian memoirs generally is when these famous comedians tend to just write about, it becomes just like a showing off thing. Here's, you know, I did this, I did this, I did this, and then I won this award. 
And, um, and because I'm the, the, the least, or, the, or basically the only non-famous comedian on the bookshelf in the, in the comedy section, I thought, I'm going to do the opposite. And rather than show off about anything good that's happened, not that I've done many, I just wanted to talk about all the terrible things that have happened. Because I figured also, it's funnier. But um, to answer your question, I mean, it, it can be tough and it can be soul-destroying. And in the past few years, I've had plenty of times when I've literally thought about giving up. But all it takes is one to come back. Three years ago, before it was June 2019, I found a diary entry where I was, I'd had a run of bad corporate gigs. And I literally thought, I, I, I've, I've, I've lost it. I've lost the touch. This is it. This is the moment. And I was all but ready to give up. I wasn't actively booking more gigs. And then, God bless nurses, and I would say that anyway, but I went to do uh, a, a gig for a thousand nurses at the Richard Curry Center at UMB Fredericton. And I was sat there thinking this is going to be terrible. I've been bombing night after night, and I can't believe I'm going to ruin all these, these nurses. They're heroes. And stupid old me is turning up to ruin their big night. Like, and, and, I'm, I'm, and so I'm sitting there, and of course, you arrive for a sound check at like 2 p.m., and you're on at like 9 p.m. That is a lot of time to be sitting there thinking, I'm a piece of dirt. I'm going to ruin nurses. I love nurses. They're the heroes, and I'm ditching here to sabotage everything. Why did I even think? I, I mean, so, and thinking that the whole night, and then had a, an absolutely wonderful uh, gig. And again, and at the end, again, 1,000 nurses standing ovation, uh, walk off stage and go, I'm the king, you know, so it's this kind of, it, it's this ridiculous roller coaster um, of, of emotions constantly, yeah, where these um, ups and downs, and sometimes it can be, um, you know, one day after the other. But um, I think the thing is, is that I genuinely love the craft. I respect the, the process of it. There are always going to be bad gigs, and the, the cliche that you learn more from a bad gig than a good gig is, is true. And, um, and I love the art form of stand-up comedy. I was obsessed with it as a child. And then reading about, I would read comedian memoirs and I'd be like, well, these comedians seem as, as weird as me. They've got all the same problems, but how do they do this job where they walk out and talk to it if they're suffering with all of these insecurities and all, all these mental health issues and yet how do they? And so I became fascinated with it as, as an art form. So as a result, I can kind of stay philosophical when it goes horribly badly and go, well, okay, what can I, what can I learn from this? And there are, always, there are always things. I mean, the past year I've had a couple of um, disasters where I know exactly what went wrong, you know. Yeah, that's, I want to talk about the call of comedy because you, uh, you're from, from South London and you had a job, a pretty great job interviewing people for GQ. Yeah. GQ magazine, it seemed like a pretty great, you're meeting like Sheryl Crow and it seemed like a pretty cool job, the kind of job that, you know, you read a book about and you're like, oh, how do I get that kind of... Um, but the call of comedy was so strong that, like, you, you, you kind of packed all that in and around the same time that you came to Canada. So, you know, what was it like to fight it off and work at GQ? And what made you finally decide that this is what I want to go all in on? Yeah, um, it, it was it basically something that I literally was obsessed with doing from, like I say, those teenage years, but never thought I would ever have, have the strength to do it. I never thought in a million years that I, I would do it. I mean, it was actually a a teacher that told me that I could do it and should do it. She was my English teacher, and she uh, was told uh, that she only had months to live from lung cancer and came and was told she didn't have to teach us anymore and insisted that she was going to continue teaching us from her home, from her bed. And, um, and she was amazing, uh, obviously, amazing, amazing woman, and continued teaching us the syllabus, but also decided to teach us what she thought we should know. 
And she was obsessed with feminist readings of classic novels, which is why I chose to study English literature and women's studies at university in, in honor of her. She was the first person I ever confided in. My dream was to try and do stand-up comedy, and it was her that first gave me that phrase, anything is possible, which was life-changing. And as twee and cliche and, and hashtag anything is possible it sounds, when you're a very depressed and, and non-functioning uh, teenager, a phrase that you've never heard before can be, can be life-changing. But it still took me about... 15, 20 years to, to muster the courage to even try it. And it was, it was interestingly a trip to the Maritimes that was the moment that I realized I had to do it. I was, I'd been uh, dating my, my then girlfriend, now wife, for four years. We'd met in the year 2000. We had visited uh, Canada every year uh, since meeting. And in 2004, I'd literally fallen in love with the place. Um, and it was like my happy place. And I was both frustrated with life in London, frustrated with the, with, the, with the rat race, but also very mad at myself for not pursuing the dream and the thing that I wanted to do most. And we, it was New Year's Eve uh, 2004, and we were in the Water Street Dinner Theatre uh, in St. John, New Brunswick. And, and it was just magical. Like the, the, these performers are up on stage and they're, they're making us laugh and sing and they're bringing us the food. And I'm like, again, now I look back and I'm like, I mean, I, all I have to do is make an audience laugh. These geniuses have to like sing, do stand up, make sure the fries arrive to you still warm, make sure the beer arrives cold. I mean, and, I mean how do you even do that? It's just incredible. But um, I sat there watching this show and thinking, wow, these performers, they're living out their dreams. And I'm a, I'm a massive believer in that, that, that really, if you love performing, it doesn't matter in what capacity you're doing it. The, the dream is the dream. It's why I really hate hearing on TV talent shows when people, they make like the final two. And they say, you know, if I don't win this, I'm, my life is over. And I'm thinking, no, it's not. You've got an amazing voice. You've just been on TV for seven weeks. You, you can perform every night if you want. But you don't, you actually just want to be famous. Whereas uh, for my part, it was always just wanting to perform in any capacity. And, and so looking at these performers, I'm like, they are living out their dreams. It doesn't matter that it's not Vegas. And whatever's going on in their lives during the day, they are the stars of the stage. And I enjoyed the first half of the show, then the second half was overcome with jealousy for all of those reasons. <laughs> and I'm just watching them thinking, you know, then I was mad at myself for not, and I thought, how, how stupid am I? I'm depressed for not succeeding at a thing I haven't even tried. I'm like the classic maritimer that claims, this is my father-in-law, he always claims he never wins the lottery but never buys a ticket. <laughs> right, right. And I'm like, that's, that's who I'm being. So um, I made a pact that I would try stand-up that year and it took me five months, but May 2004, I, I, I did my first gig. So it was, it was a trip to, if, if you need your life changed, go to a dinner theatre in New Brunswick <laughs> or Nova Scotia and uh, it will change your life. <laughs> And let's uh, talk a bit about Canada, the call of Canada. So your mother had a connection, your brother has a connection here. And uh, I'm not going to steal all of your jokes, but you do have a funny bit about uh, what do people say to you when you tell them you've moved to the Maritimes? The welcome you give all new Maritimers. And I know it's still going on because there's a lot of people that have come in the last year and they tell me it's the same thing. And I think it's less prevalent, possibly, in Nova Scotia. But in New Brunswick, it, it's everyone, they, they meet someone that's just moved here. No one says welcome or greetings. They say, why the hell did you move here? <laughs> and I can understand it. I'm like, why are you saying that? It's a bit like where I'm at. Look around, you've got beautiful views, friendly people, and thanks to annual flooding, waterfront mansions that cost 79 cents. <laughs> why, why are you making newcomers feel like idiots for coming here? 
See, I think in Nova Scotia, there's an extra sort of, we're kind of surprised you heard of us right, right. In the, at all, right. let alone moved here. We're just, oh, you've heard of, yes, the Halifax explosion. And we're kind of accustomed to that. I, I think it is changing. But can you talk about that? Like, because your mother had a connection to BC. Your brother, I think, lives in BC. Yes. So, and, and your wife, she's uh, from New Brunswick, of course. Yes. So can you talk about that call to Canada? And did she tell you the lowdown on Nancy Regan? You kind of didn't answer that question. How do you know Nancy like we do? So, yes, good point. Um, I, I knew it because I'd heard of, I mean, obviously we would visit here every year. So she was still on TV when we were visiting. So I was seeing her, very impressed by her. And then, of course, I am so obsessed with Canada, but specifically Atlantic Canada, that I basically have watched and read and then seen every YouTube clip of every single, you know, like I've seen it all. So I've watched hours and hours of Nancy Reagan. Basically, I had to catch up with the rest of you, right? I was like, I, everything that you've all consumed in 40, 50, 60 years of, of, of living in the mountains, I wanted to consume. And I have done so in eight years. That was my, <laughs> my deep dive. Um, so yeah, there are all of these connections to Canada, which are, 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 you know, obviously all just coincidences, but are incredible coincidences. Like, for example, my father's father deserted uh, my grandmother when my dad was very young and fled to, to Canada, to, to BC, uh, ostensibly to work and send money home or, and, or invite them out later and was never heard from again, started a new family. Weirdly, my, my, where my brother lives, my brother also by coincidence married a Canadian. I say coincidence, it's always copied me. So, <laughs> um, and he lives in, uh, in Vernon, BC. And weirdly, my mum, uh, when she was, uh, shortly before she met my dad, was uh, visiting BC and swam in the lake that is near my brother's house, um, which is, and, and she was, fell in love with Canada, wanted to move here. And the only reason she didn't move here was she met my dad a few weeks later in the UK. So of course, in a parallel universe, maybe Houdini Mullinger, his, his father, had done the right thing and called for him and, 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 and my grandmother and, and my dad's brother. Maybe they would have met there. All these kind of little um, connections. And I think what was interesting, like for example, when trying to form the book and trying to find a focus, I, even though I knew it was a, a memoir, I didn't want to the book to be bogged down with needing to hit every beat of my life. What I wanted the book to be was a love letter to Atlantic Canada, a love letter to this place that I visited for the first time in, in 2000. I think one of the things that, you know, I, when Pam and I met and, and fell in love, it was, it was an amazing thing. And then I had this incredible bonus when suddenly having fallen in love, coming to this, this, this region and, and then suddenly realizing that, my God, I'm so, because I mean, I to this day feel so blessed, A, to have met Pam for all of the obvious reasons, but also because I could possibly have gone my entire life without ever hearing the words New Brunswick had, um, and, and I, could still, I could still be in England very depressed and not, you know, having not found this place. You know, I mean, Tony Soprano once said, there isn't a geographical solution to an emotional problem. Well, I think there is if you move to the Maritimes. Uh, and um, what I wanted the book to be was, was a, uh, essentially a love letter to the region, but also about my journey to this place and why I fell in love with it so much. So the, really the beats and the points that I've hit upon in my childhood are all things that I think led me to fall in love with this place. So for example, you know, obviously the reason why I focused somewhat heavily on uh, the bullying and the insecurities and the problems I had at school, it's because this is the most welcoming place in the world. It is the only place in the world where, you know, newcomers are thankful. Yeah, it's true. And give yourselves a round of applause for that, because it is, it is all thanks to you.
Um, you, you all created this place, you all created this sense of community, you created a place where newcomers, again, I mean, I know, you know, and I'm sure um, all of you have read, and if you haven't read, please read uh, John's amazing book, Peace by Chocolate, about the Haddad family. And, and you speak to, to Tara, can you hear him talk about the way in which, and of course, you know, all of us find, as immigrants, we find our ways here through different ways, and obviously many people in their case, you know, they didn't come here necessarily by, obviously by choice. But the one thing that everyone always says is, is that it's the most welcoming place and they cannot believe. And I'm, again, one of the most moving stories in there is, of course, the way that the, 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 the people in the town of Antigonish built uh, a chocolate shop for the Haddad family to sell their chocolate. I mean, there's nowhere else in the world that people would do that. And, and I feel like almost every immigrant tale about coming here is that. And for my part, again, yes, I could go out and do shows, but it, I couldn't do them if people weren't telling people and spreading the word. I mean, a, a good example of this is, uh, the only reason I can tour the rest of Canada and fill venues in other parts of the country that I've never been is because when I post, for example, that I'm going to be in Ottawa or Lake Country BC or Penticton, um, it, there's, no one, I don't, there's no one out there. What happens is, is all of the comments underneath are Maritimers tagging their friends there, going, you've got to go and see this guy. He's one of us. <laughs> and, um, and I once asked Joel Plaskett what the secret of his success was. And Plaskett said that it was when he was 19, 20, he first started touring, and it was during that kind of mass exodus when everyone was leaving the Maritimes. And he would go on the road, and he said it was exactly that. He would do a show in, in, in Fort Matic or wherever it was, and, and it would, all these Maritimers would come and go and then bring everyone they worked with and go, you've got to come, this is our guy. Uh, he's one of us, one of us. He, and, then, and then these people would come and then get, you know, fall in love with Joel's work and it would snowball. Um, anyway, so I'm, I know I'm jumping around and I can't even remember if I've answered the question, actually. <laughs> oh, the question. Well, I have a follow-up question, so it doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> if, if you want to assemble a team of maritime superheroes, just get your car stuck in the winter. Within seconds, yeah. they will be pushing old ladies, little children, they'll be pushing you. Uh, exactly, but I have exactly that story in here. Um, I did a show in uh, Miramichi with Nikki Payne and um, there was someone's car stuck in the snow and Nikki Payne and I were loading up all the gear because, you know, it being, uh, being maritime comedians, of course, we, have, we're, we are also the props department and everything else. So we're loading up all the props and we see this van stuck and we run over and start trying to help push this. Anyway, of course, it turns out that we know the whole family of everyone that's in the car because maritime. And this book, you all either have a copy or will be getting one. Uh, I read it over a couple of weeks and I've left it in my living room because it's just such a, a cheerful thing to have around. Like, I just love the picture of you on the, on the cover. He's actually wearing this t-shirt underneath all of his fancy clothes. I saw that earlier. <laughs> and it's the kind of book that you can just pick up, read a chapter. It's fun. It's funny. You'll laugh. You'll enjoy it. You'll get to know James a little better. And a lot of it is the, like the, the work you put in touring, like touring Newfoundland, like, like you, some of the TV shows you've done where it seemed like the idea of the TV show was to put you in empty bars yeah. <laughs> with nobody knowing you were coming and try and be funny. So what's it been like to kind of go from Canada and the Maritimes particularly as a bit of a dream country to then you get here and it's, it's a real place and you're, you put in the work doing a lot of shows, going to a lot of places many people would never go. So what's it been like to get to know the Maritimes as a person who lives here, you have children here, you've been all over? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it really, it's a, it's, it's a, a dream gig as someone that is also a, a tourist here, you know, and I fell in love with this place over, you know, many, many years coming here, but then suddenly being given these opportunities to arrive in towns, explore them. And of course, and I talk about this a lot in the book about how 
given uh, the smaller population, I guess a, a comedian in the UK only really needs someone to come and see them maybe every five years. Whereas here, you really need people to come and want to see you a couple of times in a year. And in some cases, again, incredibly lucky, sometimes people will come three, four, five times in a year. What, Bill Bean here, amazing man, again, good on Bill. And as a result, you want to make the shows personal. So for example, you know, I mean, you will remember at the time in Yarmouth, when um, uh, there's a place in Yarmouth called The Red Knight, uh, which is just had the entire audience in hysterics. That this, that this place, that, do you know The Red Knight? It's this very, you know The Red Knight, yes. The Dead Knight. <laughs> See? It's the gift that keeps on giving. The Dead Knight. The Red Knight. Now, it's a, a considered a very, very dodgy, well, it's considered a very dodgy bar. I, it, it, it isn't dodgy. This was the weird thing moving here. Coming from a place where literally you could lock up a bike with a you know, $500 lock and someone would find a way to saw it off in London. <laughs> I left my, all my merch and cash box by accident in the red. Now, this is the kind of place the red night is. You leave everything in there. You forget. I left all of my merch in the red night and the cash box on a table. Came back five hours later, still there. So, I mean, there's dodgy and there's, dodgy, you know. To your point, I get to go to these places, explore because I'm um, legitimately fascinated. And essentially what I've done in my time here is every single thing that I've added to my job or my job spec, from like magazine, TV show, podcast, every single thing is essentially designed just to get me into as many Atlantic Canadian towns as possible and, and explore for different reasons. And, and so as a result, on, on a given day, you know, there are times when you know, I would arrive in Charlottetown uh, to, to record an episode of the debaters that night at the Confederation Center, and then, um, but then that day, kind of drive out to service to, to meet Chef Michael Smith and Chastity Smith and, and, and spend a day there. So um, I, I'm just genu genuinely fascinated by the place. So it's just a, a, a dream job for someone who is literally a tourist in the place I live. And we talked earlier, I moved to Scotland to the UK in my 20s and spent most of my 20s there, and kind of for the exact opposite reasons of you, like growing up in the Maritimes, by the time I hit my early 20s, I was kind of like, I don't want to run into my uncle and my cousin every time I walk out the door. I want to walk down a street where nobody knows me, nobody makes eye contact with me. So when you were talking about the London transit system on your, your great special sold out Arborview Arena, is that what it's called, sold out? I was like, that sounds beautiful. You could just go to work. Nobody would talk to you. So I, I got it out of my system. I did come home. So I think I missed it in the end. But um, yeah, can you talk about your personality, and from, especially from London, which is, you know, the center of the world, at least uh, in many ways, a bustling, busy, international place. So how have you adjusted your personality, yourself? Are you one of those sort of Canadians born on foreign soil and you've found a home here? I think so. In the, I mean, I definitely, like I said, like really value the concept of community. And, and, and so coming from a place where no one speaks to their neighbors, there is no sense of community. Uh, I love the, the, you know, the fact that we say hello to each other in the streets, whereas literally in England, I mean, people will lock you up for that. They will think you're <laughs> certifiably insane. So those things, those little traits uh, of this place are things that I think you know, definitely attracted me to it. Um, I mean, there is something to be said for the, for the you know, anonymity of, of, of obviously in London. I mean, but of course, what it does is it creates a system whereby people, can, people behave appallingly because there's no comeback. And it's a weird thing, you, you know, I mean, what you, the behavior you see on the tube train in the morning, Two people look perfectly respectable. They probably are perfectly decent people. One of them nudges the other. It turns into a big pushing and shouting match and everyone's effing and blinding and they're getting off at the same tube stop. But they know they will never see each other ever again, even though they probably work 
30 seconds from each other. Whereas what I like here is even though I, I do get the Maritimers are inherently nice, but you also don't have a choice to be, like, <laughs> like I mean, and, and, it's, and it's a great thing. Like I remember once I was in a, a Cineplex uh, lineup in St. John and the line was very long and slow and I uh, tutted. Right, and again, before I realized, they tutted. Uh, my wife got a text message from someone that she went to high school with saying that I was kicking off at the Cineplex <laughs> because I tutted. Now, now, now uh, that realization, uh, and I had another one where we had um, a bad experience with a contractor and we went out for dinner that night and we were sitting at the table and I started slagging off this contractor who'd, who'd caused us all. Anyway, it turned out I was sat next to his sister <laughs> and, and I quickly realized we literally have to be, we have to be nice. And, and it's a wonderful thing. It's a good thing that, that, that we've all been um, uh, uh, trained this way. And it, it kind of means, for example, that road rage is less of a thing. Like in, in England, no one thinks twice about giving someone the finger. Whereas I just know in St. John, if I kind of went, I, I mean, I did once almost do it and then realized it was the mayor who I also know socially. We, we get to be nice here. And of course we have more reasons to be and we're less stressed here. Um, but I feel like, I guess what it is, is, it, is that we make people accountable here because we are all accountable for our actions here. And I feel like anonymity in a place like London makes people less accountable. I mean, for example, I mean, the amount of, and just use a really gross example, like the stench in London streets in the morning, well, especially like the, the, the drunkenness and, and so forth that you see in public. But the amount of, again, respectable people you just see standing in the street urinating uh, in an evening because they, they, they just don't, they, you know, they're drunk, they don't care. Whereas I think, feel like here, even if someone was tempted to urinate, they'd be like, if I do that, I will bump into someone I know. <laughs> you know, not that, I'm, I'm not saying I've ever been tempted to publicly. <laughs> well, what do you miss about London? Being able to piss in the streets. That's what I really <laughs> I, I can fill you in on, on the, the spaces if you need them. I, I had a, a <laughs> I had a global I had a global TV uh, live interview once at like 7:30 in the morning for a book. Super nervous. Took the bus in. That did not help things. Jostling around in there. By the time I got off the bus, I realized that in the next 30 minutes I was going to throw up. So was I going to throw up on their studio or? And I found the Goddard Street Police Station. There's a little bit behind there you can tuck in. <laughs> I don't think anybody sees you. Sorry, I, I mean, I mean, but um, how amazing! Like that would have gone down in Maritime's TV history had you done it on air. Can you imagine? That could have made me. That could have. That would have been. Uh, that have been quite a moment. Um. So one of the things you said earlier was you touched on being famous and the difference between wanting to do the work and being famous. But I thought just reading your book and watching your your performances, there's something about like as a Maritimer myself as a Nova Scotian, like definitely in the 90s, it felt like you had to leave. Like any self-respecting Nova Scotian had to leave, even if it was just for a year. You had to go somewhere else and then come back. And so that's probably why I went to Edinburgh. But I think part of that is like feeling like, is succeeding here really success? But the way you portray it, it's like, well, these are your friends and your colleagues and the people who work at the stores that you see. So why wouldn't you want to be celebrated by them and be famous in their eyes rather than whole bunch of people who you don't know. So can you talk a bit about being famous, that sort of big thing, and then being well-known and, and you know, locally yeah. famous? And I, well, I guess the, the, I guess the wonderful thing with the Maritimes is that everyone's famous because everyone knows everyone. It's just everyone's famous for different things. So like, so, you know, someone is gonna be famous because they famously got their tongue stuck to a frozen lamppost when they were 11 and made the front page of the newspaper. So everyone's kind of known for something and, and you really wanna manage what that thing is. Like, because, <laughs> When I moved here, I discovered how people get, get, how people don't forget things. So like, so I would be like, oh, what's that guy? Oh, that's him. He got in a fight in 88 with, uh, 
Whoa, you got long memories here. Like, I mean, that was a real learning curve. Like, you really can't make any mistakes. Like, you've got to. I think. I mean, I guess it, it all depends what people are chasing. Like, like for my mind, again, my dream, my ridiculous pipe dream, was always uh, how do I uh, find a way to uh, put food on a t feed a family doing stand-up comedy, which already is a ridiculous. Of, of the people that say they want to do it, probably 0.1% of people get to do it. And then how do you stay there? Um, and again, when I moved here, obviously after why the hell did you move here, people then said, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a comedian. And everyone went, oh, no, no. no. <laughs> uh, you can't do that here, no. N nothing to laugh about in New Brunswick, no. You've got to go out west if you want to do the jokey jokes, nothing. And, um, and, and basically what a lot of people said was, all the Canadian comedians in London said to me, you know, a, they were like, they were like, the Canadian comedy scene's dead. You can't, you can't do anything there. You have to live on chicken wings. Uh, there's no, and, and 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 these were comedians from Montreal and Toronto. And then they said, "Where are you moving, Montreal, Toronto?" I said, "No, no, uh, New Brunswick." And they were like, "What?" <laughs> um, and they were like, that just won't happen. And I, 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 this is testament to how much I wanted to give my children uh, a maritime's upbringing. Was that I was. I did not know I was going to be able to carry on. It was not, not only was it not a career move, the plan was to maybe occasionally go back to London and do stand-up, maybe occasionally go to Toronto and do some yuck yucks shows. But I never, people, everyone said it wasn't really possible to do it. And so it all kind of happened somewhat organically. There was no game plan. Um, and to use the plumber analogy, it is a weird thing when people say, oh, there's no comedy in that place. Don't go there. Because you wouldn't say to a plumber, oh, there's no plumbers in that town. Don't go there. It's like, if there's no plumbers there, there's a lot of shitty toilets that need unblocking. <laughs> so that plumber's gonna, so I like to see myself as the toilet unblocker of comedy, is what I'm trying to say. Um, and so I, not that I, I, and I talk about this as if I saw it as some huge opportunity. I didn't, I didn't think this is what I'm gonna do. I just got here, started doing what a plumber would do, which is do a couple of jobs, people would tell people, and it literally started like that. I did shows, I, I remember being at my, um, mother, my, my, my wife's uh, parents' house on the Kingston Peninsula, and there was an article about us moving the home, slash there, in the newspaper, and a guy that owns a vineyard phones me up and says, hi, I own a vineyard on the peninsula, would you like to do a show here? And my English comedian brain went, that won't work, you can't, that won't work, outdoors in a vineyard. That, but then I thought, well, I've got no other work, you know, and he, he said, I'll pay you 200 bucks, and I was like, 250, he went 200, I'm like, deal. Uh, that's that's what, <laughs> what happens when you don't have an agent. And um, to cut long story short, went and did a show to, you know, 20 people. They liked it. They told people. And it literally happened very quickly. That was like May, June to 2014. Over that summer, those show, that show of 20 people on a kind of weekly basis built to about 300, who then told enough people that by October, I'd filled the Imperial Theatre in St. John, which is an 800-seater. And I never, on my own, had played a venue that big in the UK. Like, I'd never sold one out solo. So it was literally six months of being in a place where word of mouth. So the only person, I mentioned this in, in, in my acknowledgements at the back of the book, the only person who, who actually thought there was any possibility that I might be able to find any work as a comedian here was the Canadian comedian, Catherine Ryan, who is amazing, and you should buy her book. It's called The Audacity and watch her stand-up special on Netflix. Uh, she was from Sarnia. She famously worked at Hooters in uh, Toronto. And one night on the way back from Hooters, 
walk past the yuck yucks, thought I'd have a go. Anyway, for various reasons, uh, moved her to London. Her story is incredible. She's now one of the biggest stars in British comedy. Absolute superstar, multimillionaire, super famous, absolutely just, and, and amazing. She was the only person, and she was, she was not well known at the time. She was not famous at this point, but she was the one that said to me, don't believe what they tell you about Canadian comedy. She said, don't listen to the gatekeepers who tell you that you've got to audition for this club chain. You've got to play this festival. You need to do a gar Just for Love's Garland. She's like, there's a reason why that, that people want you to believe that system. She said, there's an underground independent system that you won't read about, that you won't hear about, but you can do that. And she was like, navigate it yourself and you'll be fine. And she was the only person that said that. And that was literally what I decided to do was essentially create, um, create a circuit where there wasn't one, of, of simply educating people that uh, stand-up comedy was something that they might enjoy. And invariably, the thing that I probably hear the most is people saying that either that they thought they didn't like stand-up or they'd never been to a show before. And I just think that there's an amazing movement within the Maritimes right now of this education of people. For example, one of the main investors of the Atlantic Ballet of Canada uh, one of the main bank rollers is someone who, uh, 20 years ago, when Susan Chalmers Gauvin and uh, Igor Dolbovsky approached him about it, he said, I hate ballet. And now, and she said, well, have you ever seen ballet? And, and then they he saw ballet, fell in love, and now he is the main investor. Similarly, someone like Misha Booger-Gossman, uh, Misha Booger-Gossman-Lee, sorry, as she's now married uh, to a wonderful man. She has educated people who maybe thought they didn't like opera. And I feel like that is this incredible thing. And again, I mean, again, look at, look at this library. One of the most beautiful libraries in the world is in the mountains. Can we just give it up for, for Cheryl and Scott and everyone here at Halifax uh, Central Library for letting us in here tonight. I mean, this was... This opened shortly after we moved here. We moved in February 2014. This opened, of course, in December uh, 2014. Seeing this architectural marvel in this place was one of the reasons we said we need to start a magazine to educate people in other parts of Canada that the Maritimes is where it's at. And also remind the people who keep saying, why the hell did you move here? <laughs> that they are very blessed to be in this place. <laughs> and, uh, for the, and that's Edit Magazine. Uh, you can sign up for the... Is it bi-weekly? You get an email which gives you a whole list of things. It's a great thing. I have one last question for you. So does anybody here know somebody who has oats sold Jerry Seinfeld? It's a trick question because you do. James Mullinger oats sold Jerry Seinfeld at the Harborview. Once. Harbor Station. Harbor Station. Thank you. Once. Well, well actually, I say that twice, but, but, I mean, this, is not, but this, is not a, this is not an ongoing thing. It's just once in one, twice in one city. So my wife and I downloaded Plex onto our TV last night, uh, and we got to watch your stand-up special for free, so Plex if you need it. And what really struck me is, first off, I was like, Good God, that's a lot of people. That's a huge 2,000 plus sold out arena. I mean, five, it was 5,000. 5,000. And packed to the gills. And what I loved, like in the book and in, in your podcast, you talk about how the reason you owe told Jerry Seinfeld when they asked you about that is you said, Well, were you out handing around, handing around those nice. flyers yeah. on your way to the park? And, and also, the last thing I'll leave you with is that. When I saw you up there, there's several comedians, Canadian comedians in China who speak Mandarin, and so they perform in Mandarin, and people in China, just, it's just sort of a, such a strange experience. And I kind of feel you have a little bit of that, too, to hear your English accent, but to hear you doing specifically New Brunswick jokes that are so specific that even me, as a, as a Nova Scotian, I felt like an outsider. I was like, God, i got to go to New Brunswick more often. I don't know what you're talking about. It so can you talk about that show and that sort of culmination of selling, selling 5,000... 
And I know, I know the comedian you mean, the Canadian comedian from Ottawa, who, uh, again, I guess it's the one thing about Canada, the second biggest country in the world. But actually, I joke about it being small in the Maritimes. But really, the whole, that, that Canadian comedian who is massive in China is like the biggest superstar in China. Um, I was on a stage with him in Ottawa like three weeks ago. I mean, so yeah, of course. Uh, again, I was going to say only in the Maritimes, but only in Canada. Um, I mean, those shows were obviously like a, you know, a dream come true. The first one stemmed from a, a CBC documentary that we were making called City on Fire, where a CBC wanted to do a, sto- a, a, a documentary about uh, what was happening in St. John and what really what, what was happening with the city and was it kind of having a, uh, something of a renaissance. And so they wanted it through this newcomer's eyes, which was me. Um, and I would interview people about people that were involved in, in urban planning and all kinds of different things and, and architects. But I wanted it to have, I, I knew we would get kind of one hit at this. CBC weren't going to come back and say, let's do another St. John documentary. So I also wanted to give people a reason to watch it. I wanted to give it a, a narrative that would make people watch it that had no interest in St. John. So uh, Lachlan, the director of, of, of the documentary, had the idea. He said, as a, as a joke almost, he's like, why don't you try and sell out Harbour Station? And I'm like, well, that's a good idea. And so I'd basically been here, for, I'd been here for two years, and it was decided essentially, and I just actually played that Imperial Theatre for a second time. So I'd just done another 800-seater uh, uh, the, the following year with a new show. So again, and I give these numbers because it is, when, you, when you're in a city of a population of like 90,000, it's, it's a high proportion of people that, that you, it's slim pickings, really, is what I'm saying, <laughs> of, 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 of audience. And, um, and so that was in October, and then it was decided that in April I was going to try and do this thing. So what we did was essentially rally the city and say, look, the last documentary about St. John that CBC did was about a group of amazing people trying to save the Paramount Theatre. And it was this a beautiful, inspiring film about this beautiful old theatre called the Paramount. And it was St. John, just community-minded people working and toiling to save the Paramount. And the final scene of the documentary was the Paramount being knocked down. <laughs> so I was almost able to somewhat, I guess, leverage that and go, please, please, St. John, don't let the second ever CBC documentary <laughs> about St. John be me walking out on stage in an empty arena. <laughs> um, but people got behind it. And people, but yes, and I literally went around handing out flyers. And, and I knew Jerry Seinfeld from years before. I will tell that story in a sec. But his, his publicist wrote to me to congratulate me. And, and he said, you know, so you beat Jerry's number. And of course, there are many uh, stipulations to this, which people will always point out. You know, obviously, my tickets were cheaper. Obviously, uh, there were, uh, I, I gave lots of tickets to uh, charities to sell so they could fundraise. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't beat Jerry Seinfeld. I did not make as much money as Jerry Seinfeld made from playing other stations. Well. And obviously, you got twice the last that Jerry Seinfeld well, did. Well, well, not, not for me to say, but a CBC journalist just said it. So... Uh, I'm putting that on the poster. Thanks, John. Thank God we're recording this. <laughs> um, and so that first time, it kind of felt like this, this amazing thing. And, and we did fill it. And Jerry's publicist wrote to say congratulations. And he said, how did you do it? And I said, well, put it this way. Yeah, did you have Jerry on the ground for six months handing out flyers outside every school playground, every... And, uh, and that was, that was how, how it was done, weirdly. And it was actually the architect, Monica Adair, who was in that documentary, had said to me, she said, you've got to stop thinking about this as the pinnacle. This isn't, this isn't your make-a-wish moment. This is just the first... This is your first arena show. So anyway, so then like two years to the day later, I uh, did it again, which I think is to show you what's uh, almost Canadian. Um, which, again, turned over a whole new uh, show for it. 
And, uh, and we did it again and broke the previous record. But again, all down to people in the mountains getting behind a, a, a crazy immigrant that comes here, has a crazy idea, and everyone goes, okay, well, that sounds ridiculous, but how can we help? And it's the only place in the world where people will do that. All right, that, that brings us to 8 o'clock. You are the piece by chocolate of stand-up comedy. That's a good way to describe yourself. But let's give him a round of applause. Oh, James Mullinger, ladies and gentlemen. Give it up for John. John, everyone. Thank you for listening to Mullinger Meets Canadians. If you like greatness, creativity, being inspired, laughing, or just love Canada as much as I do, then this is the podcast for you. So please do subscribe and review the show now. Thank you for listening to the third season of Mullinger Meets Canadian. Special thanks to everyone at the Halifax Central Library and at Goose Lane Editions. Thank you, John Tatry, for chatting with me. You can order his books from johntatry.ca, that's J-O-N-T-A-T-T-R-I-E.ca, and follow him on Twitter, at John Tatry. My memoir, Brit Happens Living the Canadian Dream, is available from bookstores across the country, or online from the Chapters Indigo website, or directly from the publisher, gooselane.com. Thanks for reading, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next season, my fellow countrymen. <laughs> I'm so excited I get to say that now. This has been a Podstarter production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.